Welcome to The Workplace, where we talk about the cultures we work in and how to make them better for everyone. I'm Andrew Scarcella. This episode, we're talking with Laurie Rudiman, host of Punk Rock HR, about, well, a lot of things. The balance of productivity and self-care, why meetings might be our mortal enemy, what the great remote work experiment has done to our collective cultures, and what it could look like as we start to maybe think about possibly going back into the office at some point. Let's not rush that. Stick around after the interview for tangible takeaways, where we break down the big ideas from the interview into bite-sized morsels you can use to shape your own workplace culture. Laurie Rudiman is a writer, speaker, and podcaster who helps executives and HR leaders prioritize employee experience and avoid toxic work environments by teaching them how to create workplace cultures that support, empower, and engage the people that work there. Her latest book is Betting on You, How to Put Yourself First and Finally Take Control of Your Career, and is available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and probably your local bookstore, if those exist anymore. Laurie was interviewed by our executive producer and executive interviewer, Katie Clifford. Hi, Katie. Hi, Andrew. How you doing? I'm well. How are you? I am hanging in there, yeah. I think. I think, is that's the right? a, I think that's the more accurate greeting for all of I'm us. I'm coming but... in cold is what's happening. <laughs> <laughs> I, need to, I need to boost the energy up to uh... match your interview with Laurie because it was... Uh, it was very spirited and not one-sided, which I love in a conversation. Yeah, you get two women with a lot of uh, thoughts and who aren't afraid to say them together, and you get a spirited discussion. I, I like that word, spirited. It's a, it's a good one. You get along with her really well you, because this is not the first time you've met her. Is that right? Correct. Yeah. So I I first engaged with Laurie on uh, social media a couple of years ago and was just so delighted by her. She has a very frank way of speaking, but is also like engaging and fun. And it's a really cool combination. So we asked her to be part of a couple of events that we did last year. And then when I was thinking about cool guests that we could have this year, she just was top of my list of someone who's, whose thoughts I wanted to go a little deeper on. And one of the things that I the most enjoyed about this conversation is we talked a lot about uh, how things have changed this last year, what things might look like going forward. But for me, a lot of that is, you know, those are our theories and and things pure that we hope happen or things we... <laughs> pure speculation. That is, yeah, and we are not mind readers. But I really believe that there are certain skills you can develop and uh, ways to sort of tailor yourself so that it doesn't matter what happens. It doesn't matter what comes at you. Um, you're prepared. And Laurie and I spent some time focusing on what she feels like is is the skill set that that's sort of, um, uh, if everyone developed this, you, you will find yourself in a good position to handle 
kind of come what may. And I feel like, you know, the podcasts that mean the most to me are the ones that I walk away saying, yeah, okay, that's a takeaway. That's something I can apply in my life. And that felt very much like uh, the conversation that Laurie and I had. This COVID thing took us all real by surprise. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And it's it's still taking people by surprise. (laughs) You can see the light at the end of the tunnel. Yeah, but, but we don't uh, know what now, the next... For now, it's dominating our conversations, uh, yeah. maybe as it should. And I'm, I'm glad you guys got into uh, that and also more. So yeah, let's, uh, let's get to it. So we're going to jump right in with a first question, and then we're going to talk a little bit more about who you are. But we have a question that we've been asking every guest to really kick off, and that is, what was your first job? Well, thanks for asking. I always love talking about my first job because I scooped ice cream at a Baskin Robbins, and I made two thirty-five an hour, even though minimum wage was more than that. But I lied about my age. I said I was 16 and I was really 14. And the guy's like, oh, yeah, you're 16. Okay, how about 235 an hour? And I went, deal, <laughs> because I just wanted some cash. Wow. Yeah, it was so f- <laughs> I did, and it was just so fun. I really enjoyed it. But I have to tell you, years later, I got a check from the Department of Labor because someone reported him. He was audited, and they went through his general ledger and I got a couple hundred bucks, and I thought I was rich when I got that. So it turns out the government can do some good things. Oh, they made wow. me whole, and I got a great experience out of it. Yeah, yeah. That's wild. Yeah. That is so crazy. Well, so tell us a little bit. I would imagine as a teen that an ice cream shop is like the ideal, most fun place to work. Did you do you remember anything about the kind of culture yeah, all of kinds an of ice crazy cream happen shop? there, you know? Because the adults who work there are weird because <laughs> they're working in an ice cream store, right? And then my friends would come in and say, Fair. Can you hook me up? And I had all these moral quandaries. And the answer was, Yeah, if I liked you, heck yeah, I could hook you up. You know? <laughs> It's actually perfect, Larry, that this is uh, how we start this off, because one of the reasons that we were so excited to get to know you was you really are a straight talker when it comes to HR. So, you know, you started out as an HR professional, um, and then you became a writer, a speaker, an entrepreneur. And what you're really known for is kind of a common sense, Mm -hmm. straightforward approach to workforce issues, which you know, in this day and age can sometimes be tough to be straightforward and to have common sense. So you are a blogger from way back. Yes, thank you. Yeah. You used um, your blog when you were working at a major organization to, I love this, tell stories (laughs) that could have gotten you fired. (laughs) I forgot I wrote that. Yes. But what that tells us is that you're, you really have never been afraid uh, to speak truth to power. You use that now to advise companies and to do your podcast. And, and we've been involved with some events with you where you really do kind of take that, uh, that common sense, straightforward approach. And that's what we want to talk about yeah. when we talk about COVID today. Um, this has been a wild, wild time. I don't need to remind anyone of that. Um, but particularly for the workplace, everything changed. And what we want to talk about today is what really changed? What stayed the same? What are your thoughts on what should change? And then we're going to kind of finish off by talking about a skill set that you believe is one that can, 
I don't want to say pandemic-proof you, but a skill set that is definitely going to be needed this year and will benefit you at any time. You know, it's funny that we're starting off talking about COVID and maybe a little bit about fear because... You know, I have to say, I'm I'm fearless now, but it's hard fought and really earned through a lot of failure, a lot of testing. But I kind of had this punk rock attitude when I was younger where I spoke truth to power and I thought I would burn down all these systems. And then I went to school, went to college and had a ton of student debt and quickly realized when you carry debt in this world or you just have obligations bigger than yourself, bigger than your ego it can be very scary to take risks. And so at the very early stages of my HR career, I was afraid. I was risk adverse. I didn't want to rock the boat, but I was also incredibly unhappy. And I didn't know, is that my fault? Is that Mm. the company's fault? Is that society's fault? And it turns out it's a little bit of everything. And the only thing I could control was whether or not I believed in me and whether or not I was willing to take risks. And I didn't, you know, walk into the CEO's office and throw my resignation letter on the desk and scream truth to power. But I would just do these little bitty experiments to see, can I do this and get away with it? Am I going to get fired? And we're all in HR. We know how hard it is to fire people. Nobody's going to fire me because I believed in myself. (laughs) True. So I just tested it. And you're right. One of the ways I started to test it was through blogging and through telling stories. That was back in 2004. And that took me through 2007 when I finally built up enough of an audience to say, you know what? I think I could make this a job. I think I could make it a career. But I still kept consulting and doing little things just in case the writing failed. And guess what? The writing didn't fail. So yeah, yeah. Yeah. I I love what you said about they're not going to no. fire you for believing in yourself. I just, I feel like there are so many of us who get really nervous about, you know, am I doing a good enough job and are they going to keep me around? And for the most part, not many of us are in danger of getting fired tomorrow. (laughs) No. And you know, that's so perfect for this time of COVID because so many individual HR leaders are working themselves to the bone. They are tired. They are exhausted and they feel like they Mm -hmm. have to do it. They have to show up and, oh, I can't possibly have a boundary because I'll get fired or nobody will think well of me. And I think that should be tested in your life. And maybe you can set some boundaries. Maybe you can say no. And even if they do fire you, you know, my friend Jennifer McClure, who is an esteemed HR leader, a thought leader, once told me, everybody great gets fired once. And she is right. I mean, if you are a person of substance (laughs) and you're a person of character and integrity, you may encounter a point in your life where you aggravate somebody or they aggravate you and you butt heads, stand up for yourselves and they say no. And the great among us who have been fired or have been let go or given a package to go, we take that experience and we turn it into something great. So everybody good gets fired once is something that I quote like once a week. Thank you, Jennifer McClure. It's really good. (laughs) Seriously, that very phrase sort of gets, you know, like it makes me feel hot under the collar. But but also you're totally right. And and some of the best stories of entrepreneurs are people who at some point were just like, I can't, I can't do this. Some of the greatest HR leaders I've ever met have been like, you know what? I was making great money. The company was doing well, but I had just had enough. And I think if we tell more of those stories about what feels like individual failure and shame in that moment, gosh, we could really 
inspire a movement of people taking risks and betting on themselves and doing all the good things in the world that um, pay off personally and professionally. Going back to sort of almost a year ago, we all left our offices in a big, big social experiment that has never been tried before. What are the things like from your perspective that fundamentally changed and what are we still kind of, what did, what problems did we just take home to our houses? Well, I think for a lot of us, we are much better at giving grace and finding some slack to give other people. Like I know I'm better for it. I know leaders are better for it. I've seen it. And I'm pleasantly surprised. Like we're willing to forgive the small things, the things that would fundamentally trigger us in an office, you know, the annoying habits and the personalities (laughs) and the quirks. We're letting some of that go. And I think we're also showing up as better versions of ourselves. Like I truly believe this. We're showing up and we're saying, you know what? What matters here is the human on the screen in front of me. So that gives me hope. That gives me a sense of optimism. Because when you recognize humanity and other people, you can also recognize that that person is capable of doing great work, even if they're annoying, even if they show up five minutes late for a meeting, right? We can see that they have potential beyond their job title, beyond the description of the work that they do. So I'm moved by that, actually. You know, I'm really amazed at how people are not sweating the small stuff. On the other hand, we're not doing that for ourselves. Yeah. And that breaks my heart. We still feel like we need to be um, a shell of ourselves or we need to adopt a persona. We need to be on all the time. And I think there's something performative about the computer screen where we're worried about our backgrounds and we're worried about, you know, making sure that we're visible and we're there. And and we're, we're while we are offering grace and compassion and trust to others, we're not doing it for ourselves. We're not realizing that if we need to take the time off, we don't need to make it up down the road. We're not counting hours anymore. We're not counting hours for our colleagues. Nobody's counting hours for us. And guess what? If we're in an environment where that's really, truly happening, and it is in some companies, it's time to look elsewhere. You don't have to quit today in the middle of a pandemic but you can quit down the road. You can make a plan. You can start looking and you can afford yourself a few hours on your calendar to do that. So I just think, you know, this compassion and grace that we're so willingly giving out to people needs to be reflected back on us by ourselves. I don't know. What do you think about that? Oh my gosh. I I feel like that's something that we've been discussing as we, as we, as an HR company, are trying to figure out what are people, what are they still concerned about? And yeah. we talk a lot about burnout. And I think it's just exactly what you just said. I have found this in myself and I find this in my friends is, yeah, I'm willing to give everybody else a longer rope. But when it comes to me, I still feel like I need to keep it all together. And I, I saw a funny meme. <laughs> it was like, it said, it's okay. You don't have to do everything this year. You can give yourself... Uh, a break. And then it said, my brain, except you though, me. Yeah. Except me though. Like I related to that so much, like, but not you, you have to keep it together. And I'll tell you, I did hit a point this year where I realized I got to, I got to take a vacation. Like I need to use my days. I need to walk out of this house, turn off my phone and not think about work. But I did get trapped in exactly what you said, where it was like, if I'm not here and if they can't see me, they're going to let me go. And that was not something that my company said to me. That was something I invented on my own. And 
I feel like all across the country were, you know, these little ticking time bombs of people who just feel on the one hand, I need to be so kind to everybody else. And I get it. I see their lives literally happening behind them, but not me. (laughs) I'm so glad you just owned that because there are so many leaders out there in human resources, in marketing, in sales who feel that way. And I want to say, how could you possibly lead if you're not doing it for yourself? You know, like people watch you, people understand what's happening and it's hard to give other people permission that you're not giving to yourself. And I look at these HR leaders who are consumed with employee experience. If only they were consumed with their own experience, it would have such positive downstream effects throughout the entire enterprise. But instead, they want to put in programs and policies for others. They want to encourage others to take PTO when they're not doing it themselves. And if they would only understand that disconnect and tackle it, I think they would really embody something that I've been saying for years, which is, You fix work by fixing yourself first. When you address those issues individually for yourself, you are then in a better position to have empathy, to have compassion, and fix it within the workforce. But if it's broken within you, don't expect to fix it for other people. Honestly, I think lots of leaders love to push the the narrative that I don't get tired, I don't need it. You guys should do it. You should you should take time off. You should take a break. But I'm going to send emails on a Saturday and you don't have to answer them, but I'm going to do them. And as an employee, it's like, well, I think I probably still have to do that then. And I never thought about the fact that that, that modeling, there's no way to break that cycle if you don't break That's it on right. your own. That's right. I also think there's something weird happening where leaders are lying and they're saying, oh, no, no, I took this weekend off. And maybe they are scheduling their messages to go on on a Monday morning. But then you get all of the stuff from them on Monday. Sure. And there's no way they didn't work on the weekend. You know, <laughs> there's no, like, who do they think they're, right. right. Who do, do they think all they're of that fooling? This morning. They, the workforce <laughs> are not children. The workforce are adults who run their own lives yeah. like businesses. And they look at a leader and they're like, dang, you look tired. They can see them on Zoom. They can see the bags under the eyes, you know. They know when their boss is not sleeping. Yeah. When their boss is stressed and the shoulders are by the ears. So I just, I feel like a more mature conversation could be had. I I love that so much. I I think, um, gosh, we could do a whole separate podcast about how, (laughs) how does a leader model proper behavior? I, I spent some years working in, uh, working for the Olympics and it used to come up every year. I don't need, you know, someone was always like, I don't need sleep. I can power through. And those of us who worked with those people were like, you do need sleep. You think you don't, but we're (laughs) the ones that have to put up with what you're like when you don't sleep. For sure. For sure. And also like (laughs) there are people out there with personal stories of powering through and hustling and agree, you do those things, but Mm -hmm. you get healthy in the small moments to really nail it in the big moments. So if you're constantly working at 110%, You're not going to be good in either the small or the big moments. So I love people who can really like nail it and just get stuff done when it needs to get done, but they can do it because in those quiet moments and the Tuesday afternoons, they're not grinding all the time. So got to nail the small moments to perform (laughs) in the big moments. Like that's a big lesson out of my career. If someone can figure out how to just like nail that, they'll make a gazillion dollars. I don't know. You might be the one. This might be your... 
you might be the gal. I hope so. You know, I write a lot about um, (laughs) being a slacker because if you gave me someone who worked 85 hours a week and you gave me someone who was a relative slacker but got their job done, I would take the slacker because the slacker at least is working efficiently and productively. And the person who's working 85 hours a week is probably lying to themselves and also on Facebook and Instagram and <laughs> feeling like they need to be a thought leader on LinkedIn. That, right. That's inefficient. I want someone who does their job, does it well, and is motivated to go yeah. have a more interesting multidimensional life. So give me that slacker. I will take them. I think that's been one of the things that's been hard for me, at least, is I am struggling with the work from home because I also yeah. do everything from home now. In the past, I went to concerts and I had fun with friends and I had people in my life. And now I am here alone in my house 90% of my time and there's nothing to break it up. And so it yeah. becomes easy to let work be the, the main event. And I wonder if you have any thoughts on, we are going to be heading back to the office, but what, how, do, how do you, if you are a work from home person or if, you know, if it takes a while for the world to come back, how do we good, separate ourselves? Good question, boy. If I had work. the answer, I would definitely be the multimillionaire Tony <laughs> Robbins of today. You know, <laughs> I, I'm with you. I think it's so easy to default to work when the world is crazy, the world is chaotic, and we don't have anywhere else to go. At least yeah. work is the one constant in our life that kind of makes sense that we have some control over and some expertise in. I know for me, when yeah. COVID hit. Um, I was traveling like a lot for work. I was on the road 44 weeks a year, at least one or two days, all of those weeks. Yeah. But I designed my life around that. You know, that was the life that I wanted, a life that I enjoyed. And when I was home, I was home, but I always got to go to some city. Even if it wasn't glamorous, I was doing something. And then right away at the very beginning of March, all of my speaking events started to cancel internationally first and nationally. And I thought, oh my God, Uh not only had my income dried up, but my whole sense of self was suddenly meant to evolve. Like, who am I if I'm just home on a Tuesday? It was weird. And so the natural tendency Mm -hmm. for people like me would be to freak out. Like, what am I supposed to be doing? But I have a really good friend by the name of Ryan Paw. And years ago, he wrote a book about networking called Super Connector. And one of the things about great people in this world, they have these amazing networks, not because they're out picking up business cards, but because they're trying to be of service. (laughs) So I challenged myself during COVID, like, all right, I want to freak out. I want to think about my life, my income, my family, but what can I do to actually make a difference in this really challenging time? And so I love animals and I decided to start fostering. So first I fostered a litter of kittens and then I fostered my first puppy. And believe me, when you are immersed with animals, you can't really watch the news, you know, especially when you're learning how to house train a puppy. Yeah, you know? <laughs> like, yeah. The world suddenly becomes different. <laughs> I don't have a fenced in backyard, so I had to walk this dog five or six times a day. And so I got out, I saw my neighbors, we were masked, wow. but I had a different relationship with the world through volunteerism. So I know that's not realistic for everybody, but when you're sitting around thinking about yourself, that's not a good way to live. And there are a lot of people who sit around thinking about themselves like, I don't want to be selfish. Well, you're still thinking about yourself. You know, <laughs> like, I don't want to be self-absorbed. I don't want to be that person. That's you are you, that person thinking when about you're thinking you. about yourself. So if you can escape your own existence in yeah. any way, I mean, that's just a good way to live in general, but it was definitely one of 
yeah. the most important coping mechanisms for me during COVID. And Katie, I know you have a rich and vibrant volunteerism aspect to mm-hmm. your life. And it doesn't solve all of your problems, yeah. but it's an outlet. It absolutely is. And I, I have done as much as I can this year, like things within the safe way to do it, but lots of fundraising, lots of finding organizations that need help. And you're right. When you are focused on that, you're not thinking about all of this stuff in your life and and you're able to separate. I, I you know, wanted time to devote to that. And so I did walk away from the computer. Volunteerism, I, I think both you and I feel really passionate about that and that that's, that's important and that companies should probably f- make sure that their employees know that that's something that they support and want, want us to do. For sure. And you know, so many people say to me, well, I don't have time to volunteer. And I'm like, well, you know, I saw you on Facebook today. So I think you do have time to volunteer. (laughs) One of the really important lessons I've learned in my life is really about scheduling. And there are a lot of thought leaders out there who have said what gets scheduled gets done. I've heard that from Michael Hyatt. I've heard it from a colleague Mm -hmm. named Ryan Estes. And they're absolutely right. If it's on your calendar, you honor that commitment. So I'm not someone who's like rigorously time blocked, but I do schedule my lunch every day and I try to honor that. I schedule my exercise and my outing out into the world in a very safe way. And I have scheduled volunteerism (laughs) and and things that are important to me. And whenever someone comes to me and they're burned out, the first place I go is to the Outlook calendar. And I say, we've got to get some control over your Outlook, (laughs) your Gmail, whatever calendar you have. You can absolutely set boundaries and be a little bit more thoughtful about how you spend your day. And if you really invest in the personal and make sure you're doing the things you need to do to be a healthy individual in COVID or not, if you invest in that personal, you elevate the professional because your time isn't so fractured. You're focused more on what you need to do to do an exceptional job, the job that you committed to when you accepted that job offer. So- For me, the core of burnout, really getting to that, is getting control over that Outlook calendar. But boy, Katie, it's hard when people are pinging you all day long and you feel compelled to say yes, but again, you can test it out. Can you say no? Can you say maybe not or suggest an alternate time? Boy, it's amazing what you can do when you just try. For me, I was a chronic overscheduler. I would, on a Saturday, I would try to do eight things. And that was like a badge of honor. Oh, I hit every, every person who asked me to be somewhere I went. And I've realized this year, I was like a hummingbird to everyone. I, nobody got me for an actual experience, but I got to say I went to eight things. I, you know, I find (laughs) that to be really interesting because people who um, talk about introversion and extroversion often talk about energy, right? But I like to see it a little bit differently. I think introverts avoid being out in the world and having a conversation with the world. And extroverts avoid being with themselves and being with their thoughts. And so now that I kind of see it that way, I I too have had bouts of extreme introversion and bouts of extreme extroversion in this world. And I think the key is to find some middle ground where I'm not avoiding anything. I'm brave with the conversations I need to have with myself. I'm not afraid of quiet time, but also I protect my time and my energy and don't feel like I need to be everywhere making other people happy, you know? So it's like this happy middle ground of just not avoiding anything (laughs) in the world and showing up and being my authentic self. As we look at moving back to the office and everybody, it's going to be different. Some people are going to go back. Some people aren't. Companies have 
said goodbye to their leases. I think others are like, can't wait to get your butts all back in your seats. Yeah. So things did change, uh, but what should change? What do you see as like this thing needs to? This needs to not be something we take yeah. with us when we. You know, um, we are still immersed in a meeting culture. We took that with us from the old way of work to the new way of work. And ah. I think there was the story that we were telling ourselves in the 2010s and even in early 2020, that collaboration is really important. And sure, it's important to collaborate, but that was at the expense of focus work and at the expense of just good old-fashioned critical thinking. Mm, yeah. We don't need 17 people to weigh in on a decision if we trust one another. And so I think there's got to be a real conversation as we get back to work on when do we meet? What are the rules of engagement? When do we trust one another to make good individual decisions? And can we still be part of a team, but yet have individual responsibilities? And what does that mean? You know, I won't uh, yeah. tell tales on my husband but, you know, he's an executive, right? And he's got this <laughs> a wonderful job that gives us health insurance and that we love. But the man is in meetings all day long. And one of the things I've challenged him to do Oof. every single day is to look at his calendar and see if he could cancel one meeting. And I, I think he's better. He trusts his people, you know. But can you look at your yeah. calendar the night before right. and cancel one meeting? I think that's like a healthy challenge to have in 2021. And it's certainly something that I'm doing. Yeah. Like I've got a virtual staff now. I've got three individuals who work with me and like, I never thought I would run a business like this. This is insane. But I hired them for right. a reason, for their expertise. And if I'm constantly micromanaging it, none of us are happy. So when we meet, am I using the time efficiently? And every day I try to cancel one meeting. I think that's so awesome. Well, and it it necessarily forces you out of micromanaging, right? To say, I'm not going to go to that meeting. You guys no. have got this. I don't need to be there. Or I'm going to challenge myself to say, I don't think I need to be at that meeting. And that requires a brave, bold conversation. So you don't just necessarily say, I don't need to be at your meeting. I'm out. You know, you say, hey, <laughs> what, what are we doing at this meeting? Sure. How am I contributing? Could I do this via email? Could I do this in another way? really understanding what's on your calendar and what value you provide. I think this FaceTime culture that we have, whether it's in the flesh or through the computer, is draining us yeah. and part of the problem with burnout. And if we get to the core of that, which is trust and communication, we can kind of circumvent some of this and ha hopefully have better work lives in 2021 yeah. and beyond. I get asked this a lot from like youngsters who want to know, what can I do that's going to make me invaluable? And, I, you know, I have my own thoughts about that, but you had one that is really outstanding. And I'd love for you to kind of walk us through what is this secret skill set that we can develop and how do we do it? Yeah, let's not overpromise anything. <laughs> <laughs> it's real important. Um, I don't know. You know it's, funny. it's a good one. <laughs> it's funny that you're talking about the youngsters because youngsters will say things like that to me. And I once, um, I was lucky enough to spend some time with Sarah Blakely, the founder of Spanx. Oh, wow. And she said when um, kids come to her and say, Sarah, how should I do this? Like, what do you want? She will say, I want you to do your job as if I'm not here. Mm, I like so that. So do the job I hired you to do. Use your critical thinking skills. Like show up in the way that I expected you to show up when we hired you. Wow. And that flummoxes them. But then they have to think <laughs> about, all right, what am I supposed to do? Let's work back. Let's de-risk yeah. this. I love I love all of that. Like Sarah Blakely is just spot on with that. Like no, she, do your job 
as if I weren't here. I think that's amazing. So I think part and parcel of that, the secret skill set that people can develop is really this ability to communicate at any point in their career, complex ideas in simple ways. Yeah. That benefits you, whether you're entry level, it benefits you mid-career, it benefits you at a senior level. If you have these ideas swirling in your head that you're excited about or that flummox you or what, however you feel about them, really being able to understand what you want to communicate and say it how you want to say it to the audience in front of you without worrying about, do I sound smart? Am I using the right words? But communicating to be heard by that person in front of you is a skill set that pays dividends for a lifetime. I don't know. Katie, what do you think about that? It is the thing that has been, at some points of my career, a real struggle. And at some points of my career, I have felt like I have mastered it and been good at it. And the thing is, if you want, if you get the ear of a CEO for five minutes to sell in a program, you cannot give a 25-minute explanation of where you're coming from and ground them in context. You have to be able to say, this is the campaign we want to run and, and lay out exactly what you want to do because you are not going to get tons of time from people. If you're a salesperson, you have to snag people right away and you have to be able to take, here's our complicated product and here's why you should want it. And it needs to, I need to be able to connect dots right away. It's, it's one thing that in every, every job I've ever had, the sales team always wants to know, like, how do I connect dots? And I often want to say, I gave you dots learn to connect them. Like this is, it just really resonated with me when you said that, that it helps you with your own manager. It helps Mm -hmm. you with high level managers. And then it helps you when you're trying to explain it to your, your team. If you're someone who takes 25 minutes to get to the point, you've lost everybody. Yeah. And I think part of it is also knowing your audience, right? Maybe you do get 25 minutes because you're the boss and you've got your staff (laughs) in front of you and you can kind of lay out your big idea and your big vision. But do you really want to take those 25 minutes? And I think so many of us also default into consultant speak because we're insecure, (laughs) we're nervous. Those are the words that make us sound smart and cool. But if you get around really awesome CEOs, they don't talk like that. They talk like a normal human being. They're having a conversation and they don't want your 25 minutes of context. If they're going to talk to you for 25 minutes, it's going to be because they want to know you as a human being. They want to know your story. They want to talk sports or art or pop culture or whatever's happening in the world, not this pet project that you're sweating (laughs) over. So it's really about knowing that audience and trying to connect to them on their level, understanding their motivation. And people ask me, well, how do I, how do I learn how to do this? And Part of it's trial and error, and part of it is actually taking some courses and getting good at communicating, and you can do that. I mean, this is the golden age of learning. There are free courses out there everywhere or low-cost courses, so go invest in yourself. You're worth it. Learn how to communicate to people and have some fun with it. You're going to make some mistakes, but then give yourself a hug and get over it and try again at another point. Totally. I I think um, you've done you've got done some courses through LinkedIn, correct? You've got some. Yeah, I've I've taught some courses, taught some courses. and 
I've been work. lucky enough to, um, you know, just be immersed in this LinkedIn learning world. And yeah. listen, if anybody wants a free code to test out LinkedIn learning, I've got that. I'm happy to give that away if that's something that they're interested in so they can see my courses. But yeah. more importantly, whether it's LinkedIn or Coursera or YouTube, YouTube <laughs> is free. YouTube yeah. is out there. Yeah. There's nothing I don't do in this world where I don't go to YouTube first to try to figure it out. Why wouldn't we apply that to our personal development? Who's the best boss you ever had? The best boss I ever had is my friend now, Vadim Lieberman. He's the editor of a website called ERE and Mm. TLNT, but I met him back in the day at the conference board review when I was a brand new writer. And he taught me that writing is really thinking and it's important to focus and invest in my own critical thinking skills because the work that I do to be a better thinker will show up on the page. And there were times when I was like, oh, this article is junk. And he would say to me, it's not junk. There's a lot of good stuff in here. And you know, we can't even publish this edition of this print magazine without your article. It's so important to the theme. We absolutely need you. We couldn't do this without you. So we're going to take another crack at this. And it almost makes me want to cry that someone would take the time and really work on my confidence and my ego and really be gentle with me. Um, Vadim made me a better writer. So I love him for it. Gosh, that sounds like someone we'd all like to work for. Someone who really (laughs) invests in making sure that you get the skills you need to succeed. Yeah, yeah. If you could snap your fingers and remove a corporate buzzword or phrase from the universe, which one would it be? Oh, there's a word. I don't know if it's big anymore, but the word is disintermediate. What? (laughs) Yeah, I heard it. I mean, I hear it from people who are like at Bain and McKinsey, you know, disintermediate. And it's really, it's it's a form of a word of disruption. So I would kill disruption as well. So those two, disintermediate and disruption. What is the last thing that you read that stuck with you? And that can be a book, an article, a tweet. Yeah, I read a book um, this past, in the fourth quarter of this year called Mindful Money, mm. and I'm still thinking about it. It's by Jonathan Dio, and he's a former Buddhist theologian, but he had a background in finance, and it turns out he wasn't good at language, so he couldn't transcribe all these Buddhist materials, and so he went back to his domain of expertise, which is money, but he recognized that there's a lot of um, parallels between religion and money, and so he wrote this book (laughs) called Mindful Money, and it really is all about you rethinking your values in the world and what you believe in and what you want, and then creating a money strategy around that, and so I read this book. I've read it twice now because the first time I read it and didn't do the exercises (laughs) and the second time I'm like, oh, I got to go back and do these exercises. And it's really got me thinking about uh, spending. Uh, It's got me thinking about my own business and how I run it, the inputs and the outputs. It was just such an important book that I probably... I probably recommend this book more than anything in my life right now. So Mindful Money by Jonathan Dio was really moving for me and meaningful. What does your ideal workplace culture look like? Well, my ideal workplace culture atmosphere vibe is one that's really built on a series of relationships, like deep personal relationships. Mm -hmm. I work too hard not to work with people that I dislike. I have to love the people I work with. And I mean love them. Like I really got to care for them. I have to be invested in their well-being. So if I don't love you, we're not working together. And that's not just an ideal for me. That's something I'm making happen in my life right now. A lot of people say, well, I don't have that luxury of that, but I 
I think you can love the people you work with. And if you don't love them, you can certainly forgive them. So that's a good first step. That is true. And I do think that there's something to be said for you can, when you're making the decision about where to work, you get to decide, am I going to love these people or not? And I've been really lucky to always, almost always have coworkers I love. And I've just been really picky about the places I'll work. And I think that's part of the reason the people I work with are pretty rad. You know, the people you love are also going to trigger you all the time. I mean, that's <laughs> yes. the thing oh that happens, gosh. you know? Yes. They're, think about your family. They know totally. the things that bug you and yes. you love them anyway. Yeah. And I think yeah. if we did more of that in the workforce, we just accepted that these people are going to trigger me. They're going to yeah. drive me crazy, but I'm, I love them and I'm invested in their outcomes. Boy, yeah. that could really change the very face of the workforce. Let's finish off by giving you a chance to tell us about this great book that I think just came out. Am I correct? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I'm super stoked about it. And I just want to say this past year has been chaotic, but one of the really beautiful things has been getting to know people and connecting with people. And Katie, one of the highlights of my year has been partnering with you and OC Tanner and hanging out with cool people. Again, I only work with people I enjoy and love, and it's just been real fun to do that. And nobody's paying me to say that. I'm just happy to (laughs) say it. No, it's true. You are so fun. So I'm really thrilled about our relationship. So thank you for that. You know, I wrote wrote this book. um, It's called Betting on You. And it feels weird to promote it. You know, the world is crazy and chaotic. And I'm not that person who's like, buy my stuff. (laughs) But I wrote it as a message to myself, a younger version of myself when I was really stuck at work. Like, what did I need to hear? And I read career books back then and self-help books, but it was always like, meditate and do yoga and buy crystals. And I didn't do any of that because that wasn't my jam. But what I did do is really lean into this idea of self-leadership, of individual accountability, Mm -hmm. of taking ownership of my well-being, really focusing on my learning, and truly figuring out how to take some risks in this world without like risking my mortgage payment. (laughs) And I learned some lessons. I've worked with really great people. I've coached some great people. So I just tell those stories and I think they're fun. And I try to tell some secrets about HR. I think some HR professionals might like that. So (laughs) um, I had fun with the book and it's out and it's everywhere you buy books. And it's called Betting on You. Betting on You, How to Put Yourself First and Finally Take Control of Your Career. And by the way, if more HR professionals bet on themselves, I bet they would take over the world. So I'm excited to see that evolution. I think you are probably right. And I definitely think there's not a better time on uh, planet Earth than right now to figure out how to bet on yourself and really put yourself first. I think that is something that I would imagine showed up on a lot of 2021 resolution lists is, man, I got I to gotta bet on me. So- um, well. You know, you look around at the world and you think there are all these crazy people with tons of money, all these celebrities who don't deserve it. Why them? Why not me? And the answer is, well, why not you? Let's go. Let's get started. I'm ready. You're ready. I'm ready. Thank you again for your time and your wonderful energy and your great advice. We are so lucky that we were able to work with you last year and that you are willing to come back and chat with us again. And I certainly hope this isn't our last. Thank you. I get to learn from you. So it's also a pleasure for me to enjoy this partnership. So thanks. Now it's time for Tangible Takeaways, where we take big ideas 
and heat them to 1,200 degrees Celsius, forge welding them into a workable billet, then cutting and stacking to create a 128-layer ladder-pattern Damascus blade, which we then grind, shape, polish, and etch before attaching a treated micarta handle to create our custom drop-point full-tang competition cutter bowie knife that we'll use as a paperweight. The first is that it's hard to give someone permission that you're not giving yourself. If you're an HR leader who is preaching the value of PTO to your teams while simultaneously working late hours and into the weekends, don't be surprised when your company culture ends up reflecting what you do rather than what you say. We must, as Laurie says, fix ourselves first if we want to be successful at fixing our culture. A major step in changing our own behavior is to consider the compassion and grace we're willing to grant those around us. Then look inward and grant ourselves a modicum of the same. You don't have to hold your own hand and sing Kumbaya every morning, but could it hurt? The second is that the story we've been telling ourselves about the values of collaboration can, if unchecked, lead to an overestimation of the power of meetings. A meeting of the minds can indeed lead to innovative solutions and new ways of thinking, but the overschedulization of our days comes at a cost, robbing us of time to perform focus work. As the pandemic has shown, most people are more than capable of delivering for their teams, even at a distance. And as risk fades and we're able to return to our brick-and-mortar lives, Laurie hopes we can persevere in trusting each other to make unsupervised decisions and integrate such behaviors into our new hybrid work routines. She even goes so far as suggesting a challenge for those of us who are severely overscheduled to look at our calendars for tomorrow and see if there is a meeting we can cancel. Just one meeting. It may ruffle a feather or two at first, but we'll all be better off carving out a bit more time that we can apply where and how we judge best. The third is that, in honor of the chronically overscheduled among us, this tangible takeaway isn't tangible or a takeaway. It's a moment of quiet reflection. Wherever you are in your day, take a deep breath in, hold it for a second, then release slowly, 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 and relax. This episode was written and read by yours truly with additional writing, production, and sound design by Daniel Foster Smith. If you liked this episode, or even if you didn't, please rate, 
review, and of course, subscribe to The Workplace wherever you get your podcasts. The Workplace is sponsored by O.C. Tanner, the global leader in engaging workplace cultures. O.C. Tanner's Culture Cloud provides a single, modular suite of apps for influencing and improving employee experiences through recognition, career anniversaries, well-being, leadership, and more. If you want your organization to become a place where people can't wait to come to work in the morning, go to octanner.com. Uh, that and also more. So yeah, let's uh, let's get to it. I can't wait to hear what you guys talked about. Ooh, I can't wait to hear it again. <laughs> <laughs> I had to get the last word in, didn't you, Katie? Okay, I see. Do you, do you take you it ever- over. You take it over, hosting. That's fine. <laughs>